Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and if you remember from last week, we hit that pretty heavy subject of God's divine election, this doctrine that somehow, some way, before the foundation of the world, God chose us. God chose who would know him and who would love him. And uh, if, if you were, had questions about that, we're going to expand on that today as we talk about God's predestination. And just by way of reminder, the book of Ephesians, in the first half, it's all theology, or mostly theology. Doctrines about the character and the acts of God, and the introduction in particular has that refrain to the praise of his glory, meaning that everything in this creation, not only the things, but the things that happen, point to God. It glorifies him somehow, some way. In a way, it's not something I need to try to persuade you of or convince you. Oh, yes, this is all about God's glory. Instead, the Bible sees, God, sees God's glory as the very foundation that helps us to make sense of anything and everything. So it's not something I'm trying to convince you of. You know, all the things that are happening are about God's glory. Rather, it is saying nothing makes sense about this existence except that it is somehow glorifying, magnifying God. We also said that one of the mysteries of God's glory is that he shares it with us. Ephesians 1, 3 talks about that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember that God is a blessed God, meaning he's a happy God. He's a satisfied God. He's a complete, in himself kind of God. God does not need anything. And yet God extends and shares that same blessing of who he is to us. The marvelous and incredible truth is that not only is our purpose to glorify God, just like everything else has its purpose to glorify God, <clears throat> the amazing and incredible thing is that we would also be partakers of his divine nature. The stars, the sun and the moon, the rainbows, the seas, all the vast, you know, infinite nature of, of, of our universe, all of those things, they already glorify God. They're made to glorify God just like us. But God does not share his glory with them like he shares his nature with us, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse three, uh, 4. And that's what leads us to the subject of election. God, for the purposes of glorifying himself, by sharing his glory with us, he chose, he gets to choose who he, who will participate in that glory. And if you remember, one of the glorious things about that choosing, it's that it is not based on who earns it. Who is the most wonderful and great? Who among us is the most brilliant? Who among us is the richest and the wisest? No, God chooses deliberately in order to emphasize his glory that he is going to select those who are weakest and lowest. So how can, you, how, how can you accuse God if, in fact, what he does is to choose the least and the lowest? I, I feel like if you want to go against God's divine choosing, you're saying that it would be better if he chose based on who is most talented and who is most qualified to belong to the kingdom of God. I want him to have the complete choice because I know the basis on which he chooses. Now, in a similar vein, we're going to talk about predestination, and this, I think, 
We'll probably just end up doing the introduction to this message because it's quite a long introduction. Uh, but the theme for today is predestination. And it's a very similar idea to election. We see the word predestined in verse 5 and in verse 11. But this is, uh, this is the bigger picture. If God's choosing is uh, an act that makes up many acts, which he determines for us, predestination is the description of how God has ordered beforehand all the things that are going to come to pass in our life and in every life, frankly. Let me read our passage. We're going to start at the end of verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The word predestined, uh, originally here in the Greek, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, not English or Latin. The, the word in Greek is made up of two words. It's uh, pro and horizo, if you care. <laughs> pro and horizo. Pro means before. Horizo means to mark off or determine the boundaries of something. And actually, you know a word. You know this word in English, the word horizon comes from this Greek word horizo, because what does the horizon do? It marks off the boundary between sky and land, or sky and sea. So that is this word. It metaphorically means to determine or appoint something. So literally, it would mean marking off, like on the stage, this is, we should probably do this, this is where the kids need to sit, right? And if you marked it off, that would be literally horizo. But in uh, metaphorically or in a literary sense, it means appointing or determining anything. You can say it, it's determining how things are going to be. That's how horizo is mainly used in the Bible, and it's almost always used in the context of God determining or establishing something. And when God determines it, there's no question about whether it's going to happen that way. It's not a potential thing. When God determines something, it is the way it is going to be without any question or doubt. This is what will be. So horizo means that. So pro horizo, it just puts the emphasis on how God determines how things are going to be before they happen. In a way, it's kind of redundant. If I determine how things are going to be, I'm not doing that after it happens. It doesn't make sense to determine something after it happens. Like, you know, the classic line after you trip is, I meant to do that, right? Well, you, you know, you said that after the fact to kind of cover up for the fact that something that you didn't expect to happen happened. It's a joke. You trip and fall over. I meant to do that. Well, there's no such thing as determining after the fact. You determine always before the fact. And so to say predetermine is merely to put an emphasis on how before this thing happened, God set it to happen. God intended it. God determined it to happen. Along with the idea of determining beforehand or predestining is that God isn't making things up as he goes. When you say before, determine beforehand, we are saying that before anything has happened, 
Before the foundation even of the world, as we saw in verse 4, God decreed and established things to be a certain way. Let's follow this up with a couple examples, because this one I know is such a hot topic all the time. It's one of those deep-burning Christian questions about predestination and free will. So we're going to take a little bit of time on this in the introduction here. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Book of Acts begins where the Gospels leave off. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven because the people of God have a mission to make more people of God, to make more disciples. And so Jesus, he has ascended into heaven and empowered his people to carry on this mission. Christ cannot come and reign and rule just yet because there are hardly any people in this glorious kingdom that he is going to usher in. And so, in one of the first sermons, or the first sermon recorded after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, Peter gives a sermon, and he includes this. In Acts chapter 2, 22, these words, these almost these accusations. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." Now, you don't see the word predestined there, or destined, actually. It's a horizo, not the pro-horizo, before. But it's in that word definite. It, it, you could also say to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. It doesn't have that word pro, the word meaning before, because the context tells you that this happened beforehand, the foreknowledge of God. So literally, that means the before knowledge of God. So very clearly here, Peter is saying that God planned beforehand for Jesus to be delivered up. But who are the hands that physically tortured and crucified Jesus? Well, Peter identifies them, you. And in context, Peter is addressing the Jewish people, both the ones who are present there literally hearing this sermon, but also those Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the high priests and the Sadducees. He also includes the hands of lawless men, and that would include the Romans, the soldiers, Pontius Pilate. It was their hands doing it. In other words, Peter, Peter's saying, and yet it was God's plan that they were enacting, whether they realized that or not. And even though these people were doing something extraordinarily evil and wicked, in God's eyes, it was also planned and purposed in God's mind. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 29, we had it read this morning. Very similar passage, very similar context, very similar idea. Acts 4, 27, for truly in this city, again, the, the, the sermon before the council now, for truly in this city there were planned together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a prayer to God, so that your hand and your plan is God. And again, we have the word predestined. There it is, that pro-horizo, the 
determined beforehand. What was determined beforehand? Same idea. That Herod, that Pontius Pilate, that the, the Gentiles, the Romans, and that the Jewish people had crucified Jesus Christ, had murdered him, had killed him. There's no question about it. It isn't just that God used a mob, that he just sort of incited a group of people to do something, and he's going to hope and see that this would turn out a certain way. But by naming even Herod and Pontius Pilate, we're saying that God specifically and deliberately used two very powerful political figures to ultimately accomplish his greater purpose and plan. They may have thought they were accomplishing their own will, and in fact, they were. They were doing what, exactly what they wanted to do. And yet, at the same time, whose hand was moving, whose purpose and plan and will was being done, says so clearly, God's to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, does God predetermine everything? Every single thing that happens, does God map all of that out? Or is it just some things are set and other things are just kind of, you know, they're, they're up for grabs or not quite constrained um, by God? To that, we'll, we'll address some scriptures, but you can't have one thing completely fixed and determined. So say it was determined that I was going to be a, you know, pastor at Irvine Community Church. Um, what needed to happen in order for that to be absolutely certain to happen? Well, for one thing, my parents would need to be born. Well, how many factors contribute to my parents being born? Well, their parents being born. So how many things does me just standing in the pulpit here at Irvine Community Church, how many lives does that necessitate being a certain way? So I don't think you can speak of just in a kind of coherent way. Well, God just pre-orders like, certain specific things, but a lot of other things, they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, whatever. Well, unfortunately, if he predetermines one thing, all the things associated with that are also predetermined. And you'll be surprised how connected all things are, your lives, my life. But scripture ultimately triumphs even over an explanation like that. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Now, in this whole section of Isaiah, kind of in the, in the 40s there, Isaiah, or really God, is contrasting himself with the idols and the false gods of the pagan nations. He compares himself to them and how they can do nothing. And you see a similar refrain like this in many places, but Isaiah 46, 8, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I'm God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. 
God is the one and only true creator of the universe. And by virtue of being the creator, he is also the absolute sovereign over all things, all people, even all history. He determines, he declares the end from the beginning. And you cannot declare the end, how things are going to end up, without having written every single step and page in between. You might say, well, God, does God really care about, say, what socks I wear? All right, I feel like that's a really common example. Or what kind of, um, you know, food, which fast food I will get. I, God cares, or not God cares, but um, well, he does, because he cares even about a sparrow that falls from the sky. But... Um, it's not that God cares about what socks you wear in the sense of uh, he has a particular preference of like argyle versus plaid or some colors. But uh, my choice of what socks I wear can definitely change the outcome of my, of my morning. You know, if I say, oh, I'm looking for this pair of socks and I find one, you know, in my, in my drawer, uh, I, I, can, I can say at that point, well, I'm going to hunt this other sock down. You know, you ever get a, just a crazy thought in your head? Like, I'm going to wear this pair of socks. And I could hunt around for that sock in my house. That could make me late. I'm not saying this happened this morning, by the way. Um, that could make you late for church. You know, being late for church, that could set off a whole, you know, series of events, can it not? I mean, so, yeah, like, even the kind of socks you choose to wear, that is a part of a plan, because how many incidental things, I remember I've shared this before, but uh, I got an accident, my, a real bad accident just before um, I graduated from, from UCI. And it was one of those things where if I'd left 30 seconds sooner or 30 seconds later, think about that, I wouldn't have gotten this accident, right? 30 seconds, either or. You know how much time that is? That's the time looking for a sock. So if I had really got it, you know, in my head, no, I'm going to wear the... Yeah, this is before I wore sandals all the time. <laughs> if you know me, I wear sandals all the time. But, you know, if I had chosen, I, I actually want this particular pair of socks. I'm going to look around for them. I could have not gotten into an accident. And how many lives does getting in an accident affect? Well, certainly the person that, you know, in this case, I was in the wrong. Someone hit me, but I was in the wrong. Um, but also all the police officers and the people at the intersection had to go around. I mean, the sock thing does matter where you go to eat, and all those things. So I, I cannot help but think that, yeah, when we talk about God predetermining everything, it's not just like a few key moments of history. How can you be predetermine a few key moments of history that can be affected by whether I went hunting for a sock or not? Proverbs twenty twenty four. Proverbs twenty twenty four, and you may remember or know this one. A man's steps are from Yahweh. Who then, how then can man understand his way? In other words, God is the one who knows where I'm going. He knows it better than I do. And so I'm actually in a position to not always be able to make sense of what is happening in my life. But this is Solomon saying God has determined all that. He knows. He, he has determined all of our steps. Not just where we end up, but how we get there. Maybe that's another way to put it. So the steps means that God doesn't just care about 
where we ultimately land, as long as we land there, it doesn't matter how we get there, God actually cares even about the steps that we take to get to that destination. So yes, it sure sounds like God does predetermine and predestine everything. Now, you will say, well, that seems to uh, make it so that uh, we're robots or that we uh, cannot ever be held responsible for our actions because, hey, God predetermined it that way. Um, Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and uh, for the setting, we are at the Last Supper where Jesus is with his 12 disciples. He knows that in mere moments, he'll be at Gethsemane and then being arrested and then interrogated and tortured and ultimately crucified in hours, in a matter of hours. And he knows who is going to get this ball rolling. It is going to be one of his own disciples, Judas. Beginning in verse 21, he says, Behold, Luke twenty-two twenty-one. 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. That is Judas. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Herizo. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It was determined, just like we saw in Acts 2 and Acts 4. It was determined that Jesus was going to be Betrayed. It was determined that he was going to be falsely accused. It was determined that he would be put on trial. It was determined that he would be crucified at a very specific time and day. That was all determined beforehand. Could it have gone any other way that night? And yet Jesus says, woe to that man. It's a statement of a curse. It's a threat that those who would do such a thing will be under God's judgment and wrath. Woe to him. How can he say woe to Judas when it's God who determined it? Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't really try at all to explain to us how those things are both true. In one sense, how would you even fathom it? Can you think of a time before time? Doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Can, can, you, can you think uh, infinitely? <laughs> no. So we have to understand that even as we use words like determine or even choose or predestine, we're trying very hard to grasp certain concepts and ideas that frankly are so beyond our very feeble minds. And we have to accept that with a little bit of humility Oftentimes, a passage speaking of God's predestination or determining of all things will also say, without any hesitation, without any explanation, a statement about our obligation or our responsibility. This is going as it, he's going as it has been determined. But why would he do that? Woe to you for doing that. Jesus, don't you understand the philosophical quandary here that you can't say that God, your father, determined this. It could go no other way. And then tell the man that it is on his head for doing this. You don't, do we get to tell Jesus that? No, you don't, you're not making sense here, Jesus. I've heard a lot of philosophers, and they say it's got to be this or this. The Bible, frankly, does not care so much. I want to give just a, 
a couple, see, this is all introduction. <laughs> uh, and we won't get to the main, the, we'll get to the main message next time. Um, the Bible teaches predestination extremely clearly. We've read a bunch of passages. There's no doubt that God determines the end from the beginning before the foundation of the world. It, we were chosen, all those things. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't teach us how to understand predestination. It teaches you very clearly predestination, but it does not teach you how to understand it. There's no passage where an author of Scripture, like Paul says, here, let me explain how to reconcile all this. I made a PowerPoint, um, you know, worked on it all night, and I'm going to explain to you how we weave together God's sovereignty and divine predestination and our responsibility for sin and our culpability for our actions. And boom, you know, he starts up the, the, the tablet um, or the scroll or whatever. The closest that we get, the closest that we get to any kind of attempt, if you can even call that, about predestination is Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is fundamentally talking about the relationship of the Jewish people to God and what it means that Gentiles are now a part of this equation and this purpose and plan of God. So if you look at Romans chapter 9, we'll just... Starting verse 18, we set up the conundrum the way we, we typically put this. Romans 9.18. So then, he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He's talking there about um, Pharaoh. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? This is the question. How can this divine, sovereign predestinating God coexist? How can that coexist with our culpability and responsibility for our actions? Now, Paul does not try to dissect it all. And he said, well, you see, this philosopher said this, this philosopher said that, this theologian. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Paul's response to that question is uh, predestination is true. What are you going to do about it? You're going to complain? You're going to complain to God? So Israel is in a state of disobedience, and that's God's plan. What are you going to argue with God and his plan? What if he has a purpose for this? Are you to tell him that his purpose is wrong or it's not good? But if you notice, look at Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, 
my, des- my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jewish people, that by God's sovereign plan are in a state of disobedience and disbelief, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Think about this. What does Paul want? What is his heart's desire? It's to see Jewish people be saved. But Paul, didn't you just say the Jewish people were predestined, predetermined to not believe? They're in a state of unbelief. Are you desiring now something contrary to the will of God? Yeah, think about that. Like, he has no qualms, no hesitation to tell you, yeah, Potter has a right over the clay. He's going to question God. He chooses some, doesn't choose others. What are you going to do about it? And then right after, Paul says, my heart is breaking for these people that God has determined not to be saved. And then who does he put the blame for on their ignorance them. They have not submitted. It's their fault. They're, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they don't submit to God's righteousness. Does he blame God? No, he blames them. Is Paul sinning because he wants them to believe? And yes, Jewish people individually, they do come to salvation. So it's not that no Jewish people has ever come to faith because of this eternal degree, but just in the context of him talking about, it is a settled thing that Israel's unbelief is happening according to prophecy and the predetermined plan. But my heart's desire is to see them saved. He's not sinning to think that. It doesn't separate their responsibility, their refusal to submit to God's righteousness just because it's been predetermined for them. Notice that Paul doesn't try to Somehow substantiate this again. Like, let me tell you what you know. There's some folks who uh, believe in uh, what's called the middle knowledge, or you know, some people are open theists and get into this whole big theological debate, which tons and tons and tons and tons of books have been written about. Paul simply has no problem, as does the rest of the Bible, to seemingly and simply lay out these two separate train tracks: God's absolute sovereign choice and election unchangeable, fixed, determined before the foundation of the world, and man's responsibility for their actions and inability to blame God. He has no problems laying them both down as if they are the same track. Just, he doesn't hesitate to do it without any transition or any explanation. And this happens over and over again in the Bible. Constantly, You start looking for it, and you constantly see it. Notice how Paul ends. Of course, Romans 10 also has a wonderful passage about, you know, for with the heart one believes and justified, with the mouth one confesses, right? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The great call to salvation. Well, Paul, you also say in other places that... Uh, you have to be divinely chosen. So which is it? Paul just says, yes, 
keeps going on, doesn't care. What do you think? Doesn't care how you feel about that. Yes. But notice how Romans 9 through 11, again, pretty much about this subject, as close as you get to Paul's maybe thinking on the topic. How does he end? How does he end this passage? Romans chapter 11, starting verse 33. And just as he thinks about God's wonderful plan from the beginning, how it's going to play out, how the Jewish people will be restored, will be saved, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Oh, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Worship to the praise of his glory. Deal with it. (laughs) Predestination. Our responsibility. Ultimately, God's purpose and plan being accomplished. Maybe we can't exactly understand how they could possibly be the same track, even though they seem like very different tracks. But the Bible just sort of assumes it, just talks like that. I don't see any problem for us to speak and talk in the same way as they do. I want to close, actually, with sort of an application or maybe just a a thought here. Um, Again, this is a little bit a little bit off because I, that was all really, I was going to plan to do that much shorter time and, and get to, to Ephesians and talk about, you know, predestinating um, and all that. But I, I know that sometimes we think, this hit me this week. You know, I've heard many, many times like, well, predestination would mean that we're all robots. We're not robots. We don't just, you know, move along. But I thought about this. You know, we kind of are. <laughs> kind of are robots. There are a lot. There are a lot of automated functions in your body. You are made up of, on average, 37 trillion cells, like the average adult. 37 trillion cells is an incredibly gigantic number that you cannot even really fathom. Now, if you gave each cell a dollar, that would be our debt or you know, not even, not even close. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's less than our national debt. Anyway, <laughs> but 37 trillion—it really is a mind-boggling number. You can't really fathom. Like you think, you know, well, that's just, you know, 37,000 billions. You don't. You don't really have a. We don't really grasp these numbers. So that might as well just be a gibberish number. It's uncountable frankly, to be quite honest with you. It's unbelievably large. Now, nearly all of those cells are doing things according to a programming, like literally like a computer programming language, which is our DNA, which is coding for proteins and enzymes and so on. And nearly all of that is happening automatically. You are not controlling 37 trillion cells in your body right now. You're not even thinking about that. You don't even think about your heart beating or your lungs Breathing. You don't think about any of that. We think we're in control because we can do stuff like move your arm. I want to move my arm, I move my arm. But do you know how many like automatic processes are even happening in each of the cells from your brain to your arm 
from the nerves, the impulses, to the nerves, to the muscles. You're not thinking about any of that stuff. It's very automatic. You are mostly robot in that sense. Really. And yeah, there are a lot of functions you might think in our control, but the most important and basic ones for the functioning of your body are happening so, so automatically and meticulously. Like, do you know, like every cell, all those 37 trillion cells, they all need oxygen, right? Did I have that right? <laughs> Someone correct me that's a biologist. I think they all need oxygen. So your body constantly, right now, is feeding like 37 trillion cells with oxygen. And you, you're not, don't flatter yourself. You're not doing anything to make that happen. <laughs> Oh, but you say, the thing is that's most significant is that I am in control of my thoughts, right? Like, like I am in control of that, right? That's what makes me, me, is my thoughts, right? So that is what we're talking about when we talk about it would make me a robot. But you know what? I know we like to think we're very independent and self-controlled, and no one tells us what to do, no one tells us what to think. But that's, that's not true either. You know, social media and advertising wouldn't exist unless humans thought in very, very predictable patterns that they know certain stimuli, external stimuli, will produce certain actions, behaviors, and thoughts in us. Human behavior is actually very easy to manipulate. For example, if I said, what's the opposite of up? Someone said sideways, get out of it. Is that you, Johnny? <laughs> okay, maybe the one out of 100. <laughs> if I say, what's the opposite of up? Most of you think down. Now, I'm not saying I'm controlling your mind or something like that, all right? But do you see how easy that is? Now, think of it maybe this way. There's things I could say to you right now. If we're in a personal conversation, there's things I could say to you that I'm pretty sure could immediately elicit anger from you, almost as a reflex. You might not even have a chance to think about it. I could say things to you that would immediately set you off almost uncontrollably. And there are things I could say to you, of course, that could immediately, you know, make you rejoice and happy. Think, think of how much, think of how many of our actions and thoughts really are not even things that we actively, deliberately, in the moment control. Even our thoughts. You say, you're not a robot. Oh, I don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I do what I want, I think what I want, but I'll make this admission. Maybe that is true for you. But a lot of days, I feel like a robot. <laughs> A lot of days just going through life, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm at the whim of my schedule, other people's needs. I'm at the whim of internal desires like hunger and tiredness. I, I, I find myself in, uh, especially if you're an adult, maybe you're a kid, it's, it doesn't seem, this doesn't seem quite as true, but uh, I can find myself as adult, uh, an adult getting to ruts of like patterns of thinking and behavior. They're just very consistent. Uh, some sun Sundays I talk to people and, and uh, you'll say the same thing that I've heard a thousand times. 
And the same stories I, I've heard. That's not a dig at anyone. I do the same thing. We're like video game characters. We just have this set dialogue that we say. Like, I know if we talk about the news, what you're going to say. I know if we talk about the weather, what you're going to say. We're not robots. I'm not sure <laughs> if we could really, really make that claim. More importantly, more importantly, we all really had independent free will, self-control. I am, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I can do what I want. I can say what I want. I, I, I am constrained by no one and everything. I just, I can be totally free. If that's true, why do we get drawn to the same sins over and over again? Maybe you don't. I think most of us, we kind of fall into the same sins. Why do we, if we know what's right to do, we consistently don't choose that and struggle with that. What does that mean about our nature? Why is it that we so easily get thrown into the same thought patterns and stubborn ways of thinking? Let's ask it this way, especially as an adult. When's the last time you changed your mind about something? Like, actually change your mind? Or is it more often the case that we subtly do fall into this robotic assumption that I'm right about everything? Or maybe even a better question. When's the last time you actually believed and admitted that you were absolutely dead wrong about something? just fully embraced and admitted that you believed something wrong or you did something wrong, and you're like, oh, man, I just blew my mind with how terrible I am and what I just did. Or, like a robot, do we just, well, did the same thing I always do then, and I'm going to do the same pattern of feeling bad about it and, you know, uh, buying stuff on Amazon or drinking a whole, you know, bottle of wine or whatever you do to deal with it, and you just do the same thing even in the cycle of dealing with your sin and the things that you do wrong. Here's, why do I bring that up? <laughs> the Bible doesn't talk about robots. It doesn't ever mention even something like free will. But the Bible does use a picture that illustrates how we should think about our nature and why predestination is kind of important just from a fundamental nature of who we are kind of thing. Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 17 through 19. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. The phrase being a slave of something, there's a certain destiny to that, a certain programming or way you must live and be. When you are a slave, it speaks of complete submission. And a robot is something completely submitted to a program. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about robots, but it does talk about 
We are slaves to sin. It is our destiny in being a slave to sin to respond selfishly to life, to think that we are right, others are wrong, to think the world should revolve around me, to get angry when it doesn't, to desire things I can't have, so maybe I lie, maybe I steal, maybe I murder to get it, or maybe just be passive-aggressive and manipulate someone into giving it to me. Maybe it's to try and get so much control and power that I think that I can get everyone to do what I want them to do. But even as I might do those things, I am a slave to my selfish thinking. I am a robot. And my programming is to sin. Sinners. We are, the Bible does say in a way, that we are robots. That we are enslaved to sin. Do you not believe that? It says it right here. But God, what God does, is he, by his predetermined plan and his divine choice, he sets us free from sin to become a slave of righteousness. Not free to now freely choose whether I'm going to be righteous or or, or evil, but no, I just go from one programming to another. No longer a slave to sin, But now by the grace and mercy of God, a slave to righteousness, a new nature, a new programming, if you will, that seeks to obey and submit to God. I don't know that the Bible ever presents that a human being is this neutral creature that can either choose good or choose evil. Rather, it speaks of us as either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. Heaven is not a place where we will be able to choose to sin. If, if, if you believe that, I, I, I think that's a very dangerous thought. Because it just makes heaven the exact same kind of place as the garden. And what happened in the garden? We sinned. It's an inevitability of our creaturely nature. No, heaven is exactly the promise that sin is no longer part of the creation. It has been removed, if you will, from the programming of the universe and from our lives. And I appreciate that Paul, not that he thinks he's talking about robots, okay? It's just an analogy. But even he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He knows even in using the analogy of like slave to sin, slave to righteousness, even in me using the analogy like, you know, we're not robots or we are robots or whatever, that these are just hard to grasp concepts Sometimes. But God, for sure, does not, just by God predetermining things, it does not make us robots in that simplistic sense. Because, again, he orders, determines, and plans, and yet, woe to you. Seems like two tracks, but they're the same track. But I will say this. Um... The goal is to the praise of his glorious grace. Predestination is meant to be a comfort to us. Not something that we use to accuse God. Why did you make me this way? Why did you make this person this way? It is to be the ultimate comfort for us. That even, I wish I could tell you that I am some perfectly self-controlled man Every single thought I just have tethered down, that every single thing I do and say throughout the course of the week is completely pristine and perfect and without sin. But I can't. 
My only hope is that Jesus Christ has paid the price of my sin. My only hope to do anything good in this life is that, not that I'm a good person, it's that he has given me a good nature, a nature that wants to be obedient to him, to be a slave to righteousness. I just can't imagine and maybe more than just me imagining, the Bible simply does not paint a picture of anything other than a Christian seeing that God predetermining, preordering, predestining is something that motivates us to live faithful lives, not become an excuse of why we don't have to be faithful. That is not the application of predestination. It is to strip us bear of any claim to our own righteousness, any claim to our own goodness, any claim to deserve anything from God. It, it humbles us. It should bring us to our knees so that we can say, God, then yeah, you, you take control of this then. You work in my heart then. This is your problem. I'm your problem, God. You fix this. If I try to fix myself, I can't do it. Now, are there means of grace? Yes. And we're going to talk next time about the motive for God's predestination is love. He does these things because he loves. The goal for our predestination is to bring us into his family. The plan for predestination, how it plays out, is for our good. And the purpose, of course, of all things, including predestination, is praise. We'll talk about that next time. Heavenly Father, sometimes I don't even know what... what what it is that you would have me to, to learn and grow and save just to consider my own frailty and humanity.